of 1 Corinthians in the 6th chapter. I would ask you to turn to that place in your Bible because we'll be there momentarily and look at it in a little more detail. The title of this sermon, as you can see, is Such Were Some of You. I will talk to you for a moment about the city of Corinth and its people in the days of the Apostle Paul, right there in your Bible. The city was a raunchy city, and the people were raunchy people, sin-loving. The city was located to the eastern end of the Corinth Gulf, where a four-mile isthmus, it's, uh, an isthmus is simply a, a strip of rock-solid land, uh, separated the Ionian Sea from the Aegean Sea. And you have a map here on the screen in front of you. I want you to be able to locate this place and appreciate it properly. So we're looking here at um, Corinth. And we're looking at this uh, area, the, the Mediterranean Sea, as you can see here on, on the screen in front of you. Here's the city of Corinth. And right in here, there's a little body of water. The Corinth Gulf comes in right in here. And over here on this side, the Aegean side, is another body of water. And this little strip of land right in here is where the city of Corinth was. And this is the place where we're discussing today. And I'm telling you, this was one of the raunchiest cities. I will tell you that this was built, this uh, area was built up, and, and it became one of the centers of the, script, of the Bible, at least in the Bible days of the Apostle Paul. This area right down here is called Achaia. And I want you to just take a moment and look how far it would be for a, a mariner, somebody who's shipping from over here to get over here into the Aegean, or vice versa, this is the Ionian Sea, they would have to go all the way around this little uh, piece of land here, which is about 300 miles, and would take them in those small ships of that day several weeks to make this. So this became a place where mariners came and where they tried to get their load from one place to the other in the shortest amount of time. <clears throat> it was... Uh, it was an area that's called uh, Dioclos uh, in that, that particular day. And there was a fellow who was living about that time, a little B.C. actually, who decided to, to actually make a bridge. They didn't know how to cut a canal through here and, and open this up to shipping to save this long way around here. So there was a guy who came up with the idea of making actually a sort of lift with some stones for this four-mile distance so that mariners who would come up on this side and wanted to go to this side could actually take their ship, take ropes, and pull it. They would actually pull it over this four miles to get over here into the Aegean Sea and vice versa. So it was sort of a ship road, but lived by manpower, the ability of people to pull these ships across here and uh, get to the next place. There came a time when when uh, the city of, or, or the people of, of Greece decided to build a canal through here. I mean, in the 1800s in our time, 1883 to actually 1893, uh, they finally carved a canal through here called the Corinthian Canal. It's 80.7 feet wide, but by the time they got the thing done, most ships were too big to go through there, so it's mostly a tourist attraction now. <laughs> Just sitting here. But this has been a point of attention for a long, long time. Corinth became the city of prostitutes and prostitution. Sailors came ashore, 
After they'd be out in the Mediterranean or in these other seas for a long period of time, they would come ashore, and they had sex on their mind. And just outside of the city of Corinth stood a, a temple, a magnificent temple. It's called the Temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was a sex guard god for those people in that day. And so this temple stood there, and at one time, this temple had as many as 1,000 prostitutes in it. This whorehouse thrived in the name of God and this goddess in this place called the place of love. The apostle Paul established a church, you know that, in the city of Corinth. He went into this very wicked place and established the church in Corinth. We have two of at least three letters that the apostle wrote. They're first and second Corinthians right here in your Bible and the first six chapters of his first book is a condemnation of their lurid ways. I mean, and they were wicked people all through and through. He talks in the first chapter about their bickering. In the, even inside this church, they were arguing with each other, and fighting against each other. Internal strife and division, along with pride, and they exalted worldly wisdom. They liked to stand around and talk about how smart they were and about how much they knew, and so they would... Uh, exalt to their own worldly wisdom and certainly didn't think much about any other wisdom other than theirs because they were humanists, basically humanists in their own mind. Carnality and pride is talked about at great length in chapter 3 of this book, this first book that we have the apostle wrote to these people in this particular place. Chapter 4 particularly deals with arrogance. They were very stubborn people and they were very high-minded and they all thought they were better than everybody else. And then chapter 5 deals with sex sins, which had actually made it inside the church, even to the point of a man having sex with his own stepmother. And Paul, the apostle Paul, condemns that, and he says there's no such practice should ever be among a Christian. Cheating, lawsuits against each other and against uh, neighbors and people like that, and abuses against God and each other are the main theme of the sixth chapter, which brings us to where we are in our text here today. I want you to hear it for your own self. So come with me to chapter six, and I will read in your hearing verses six through, or excuse me, eight through eleven. Verse eight. Now you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. So he's talking about what he's been saying in the verses before. You're, you're treating each other poorly. You're treating each other wrong. Look at verse nine. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. What a list. What a list. Let's just look at it in a little greater detail here. Extortioners. That is, um, people who were, who were uh, uh, intimidating other people, trying to get the uh, most money they could, or somehow pressured other people. Look at fornicators. That's sex before, and it's out, sex outside of marriage. That's the, time, the term the Bible used to describe this. Idolaters. Blatant, blatant 
worshipers of false gods. He said, this is what's going on in this area. This is a hotbed for these particular activities. Adulterers, lewd, sex before marriage people, effeminate. We would call them sissies. We would call them just a little uh, uh, sissies who uh, are too affluent and too small to work. Abusers of themselves with mankind. I think this uh, is well understood in our world today. We call it LGBTQ, lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender, and queer. That's their own terminology they put to that. This is not something new. It's just gained momentum and traction today, but it's been around a long, long time. And so the Apostle Paul is using the word abusers of themselves with mankind to talk of this sort of thing, homosexuals, that kind of lifestyle. And then thieves. We don't have any problem understanding what a thief is. He's a stealer. He's somebody who takes from somebody else which is not his and takes it maybe sometimes even by force. There are lots of ways to steal. Not just steal somebody's car or steal somebody's money, but there are a lot of other ways to steal somebody's name and, and we steal in our income tax and we steal in a lot of different ways. Covetous, that's in this list here. Greedy, people who are wanting what belongs to another. Always figuring out how I can get some, I want your wife, I want your money, I want covetous, that's what he's talking about here. Then he uses the word drunkards, alcohol abuse. You know that's not in vogue in our day. The Apostle Paul would have probably been, has actually been written off as being uh, not politically correct. They're just drunkards. That's what he calls them here, uh, drunkards. They've been addicted to alcohol abuse. And then revilers, abusive, hardcore crooks, people who have no shame, who just hurt other people and think nothing of it extortioners, that's these blackmailers, these who are pressuring others, these outlaws. This is quite a terrible list. As you can see, it's a slutty list. You just look at it any way you will, and it's a bad list that the Apostle Paul gives here. And then right in the middle of the smutty list, he says, and such were some of you. Boy, just want you to let that soak for a moment. That's what the members of the church in Corinth were before they met Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Doing these things, these awful things, everybody can agree this is a terrible list. But these people in Corinth had been saved by the marvelous work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as a result, their lives have been changed. But he's reminding them with this long list, this is what you were. This is how you thought. This is your kind of behavior, and you're only where you are by the goodness and by the grace of God. I cannot help wondering what the Apostle Paul would say if he walked into North West Baptist Church today and knew us like he knew them. I wonder where you were before you came to know the Savior. I know where I was. I look back at my life, even as a little boy, and I'll tell you, it was a long, long way from what it should have been. I have no way to throw stones at anybody. So we have to wonder where we were. I doubt that there's a person in this room who doesn't have a closet full of raunchy past. Some really bad stuff that you'd be embarrassed if people knew. I wonder how many sex sins have been committed by the people sitting in this room today. 
people that then uh, since you say, I knew better and I knew it shouldn't happen, but it's, I've been guilty of this. I wonder how much pride is in this room. Only God knows. But God does know. He understands where we are. He understands where we've been. He understands our situation in life. And in this case of this church in Corinth, he just sent a guy along to point it out. Just raise the flag up and said, I just want to remind you where you used to be. The theme of this message of 1 Corinthians comes through really loud and clear. It is the lordship of Jesus Christ demands practical holiness in the life of his people. That's the whole idea of the preaching of this book and the teaching of this book. It's summed up. When you come to know Christ as your personal Savior, it ought to change your life for the better. It ought to move you from where you were to a higher plane, to a better way of thinking, to a better way of behaving, to a better way of walking in your life, a better neighbor, a better husband, a better wife, a better parent, a better everything. The work of God changes lives. The apostle saying, if you're saved by the grace of God, you're a new creature in Jesus Christ, and your life should be a reflection of the newness that is yours because you met the Savior. This picture with its piercing statement, speaks to every one of us today. The Apostle Paul wasn't just talking to them in that church. He's talking to we who are here in this church and to other churches, not in just that generation, but in every generation, right down here to us. So there's a message right here, a timeless message here for us. And I think we have to come to the realization, first of all, that this is a caution against self-righteousness. When he names all these bad things that had been going on in this raunchy place in this world at that time and says, such were some of you, he's cautioning us against being overly righteous in our own goodness and strutting ourselves because we're better than somebody else. We think that because we've been saved now, we've arrived and they haven't. And so we look down at the guy in the corner. We look down on prostitutes. We look down on people around us. The Apostle Paul's are issuing a warning here because there's a streak, I mean a big streak of piousness in most all of us. We'd like to think of ourselves better than we really are. We'd like to think of ourselves as I'm better than them for sure. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, Luke 18 and verse 11. Here's a guy who's bragging about how much better he was than somebody else. And probably most of us would not brag about that, but deep down we really think we're better than a whole lot of folks. We scorn the Pharisee, but deep down what do we think about those stinking politicians? What do we really think in our heart about drug lords? Or bringing these drugs up here and capturing young people and older people's lives and wrecking lives. We look at those with great scorn. And what do you think when you see those commercials that are push, pushing the LGBTQ uh, agenda? We think, my gosh, what's that doing on television? And we're trying to solicit our own kids right in front of us from our own living rooms. They're trying to say, this looks good. This is the way it ought to be here. We scorn those lazy people who won't work, who just live off welfare. They're just looking for some way so they can build the system some better way or more, get more money. Yeah, most of us have a very clear and distinct line between us and them. I'm over here. 
they're over there. I'm way better than them because I'm not doing what they used to do and what they're doing right now. Beware lest we forget who we are and would be without the saving grace of our great God. I'm telling you this morning, it's a caution here against self-righteousness. And we have to bear in mind where we were and where we still would be except for the saving grace of our great God. I have no doubt that a good, honest, expose all the bones in the closets of the people in this room would empty this room in a hurry if we were going to do that. You say, I'm not going to let them tell about me. I'm not going to get up here and confess to what I used to do and what I've done and some of the sins. No, that's between me and God. And I say, praise God and keep it between you and God. But don't let yourself get to thinking that somehow you're a whole lot better than LBGQQ people or that you're a whole lot better than lazy people or you're a whole lot better than other people out there in this world. We're sinners saved by grace, folks. The only hope we have is the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus said to the religious elite of his day, let him that is without sin cast the first stone at her. He's talking to all of us. Before you get rocks and start throwing them at those people who are so bad, I will tell you, you need to think about it because in that day, everyone walked away. All of the Pharisees and all the best guys in town, when Jesus asked, if you have no sin, you cast the first stone at this lady who was taken in the act of adultery, in the very act, and they all walked off because every one of them, when they faced themselves, had to realize, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. That's the only way I am, who I am. This woman caught in the very act of sex outside marriage. However, the very best among them was just as much a sinner as she was. And Jesus made that obvious, made it very clear by his question to all those people. Brothers and sisters, before we get too high and before we get too mighty and look with such scorn on all those sinners that live and breathe and eat among us, we'd better remember that they are us. That we have that same fallen nature they have. We have that same spirit of arrogance they have. We have that same spirit of I'm better than than they have that they have. We better remember that they are us. Before we met Jesus Christ, we were right there. And don't ever forget where you were before you met Jesus Christ, who is your only hope. You had no hope. Among the redeemed, there is absolutely no room for self self-exalting, somehow putting our own horns and saying, well, I'm glad that I'm not like them. I'm glad that I'm not one of them. And such were some of you. Wow. That cuts me. I have to tell you. Sometimes I get too big for my britches too. It's easy to do. And the more you stay out of the word of God, the more you lay out of church, the bigger and better you'll think you are. I will tell you, you'd better not let yourself get too high and mighty. At best, at best, we're just sinners saved by grace. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. When I stood condemned to death, he took my place. Now I live and breathe in freedom, and with each breath of air I take, loved and forgiven, backed with a living, Justice, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. I also want to tell you that when Paul the Apostle dropped in this little bomb, and such were some of you, 
It's a testimonial to the grace of God. Such a testimony, not only a caution to all of us to not get too big for our britches, but here's a, here's a great testimonial to the grace of God. The word grace, in the Greek it's charis. It's the unmerited favor of God. Most of you know that. The gift of forgiveness and eternal life. When we deserve nothing but scorn, it's the fact that God intervened for us and went to the cross in our place when we deserve to die and not him deserve to die. We are facing the wrath and damnation of God and deserved all the scorn we get. But Jesus Christ, who was God with us, perfect and sinless, took our sin in his own body on the tree and paid with his own blood our eternal sacrifice once and forever. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we're healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6. I tell you this morning, God's grace has no parallel. We can analogize most things. It's like this, you know, it's like a big tree or it's like a sower went forth to sow seed and we can analogize most things, but there is no real analogy to the grace of God. You just cannot compare it to really anything. I don't, he didn't have to. He didn't have to go to the cross. He didn't have to do what he did. He did it because he chose to. He, he was willing to do it. The Romans didn't take his life from him. Neither did the Jews. He laid it down of his own free choice for you and me. I'm talking about the grace of God that would move the Son of God to take my sin and your sin and pay with his own blood on that cross. The love of our great God knows no limits. There's a beautiful song that says, his love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Amen. Praise God for the grace of God. The grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men. Titus 2 and verse 11. It's appeared to the Hitlers. It's appeared to the prostitutes in, in the temple Aphrodite. It's appeared to Lester Hudson. It's appeared in this world. The grace of God, the goodness of God is available to every man. Whosoever will, let him come. And take of the water of life freely. And such were some of you. No one who's been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb has any room for boasting. And number two, except for God's grace, every one of us would go to hell and spend eternity there. Every one of us should shout the praises of God's grace. Look, to yourself, look at yourself and look at where you were and look at what you deserve. And if you're saved by the grace of God, you have, should have nothing but praise for God and gratitude for him for his grace, which reached you. Let me also say that this statement is a reminder of the need for forgiveness and compassion. When he said, and such were some of you, he's reminding them and us that we don't have any room for bragging. And if we were forgiven, we ought to learn how to forgive other people. If God could do what he's done and show us grace, 
we ought to have grace toward people around us who are less than perfect. And we're living in a world of imperfect people. You know, and I know how guilty and undeserving we were. We all are aware of that. We can't any one of us say anything but, yes, I'm guilty. Each of us would do well to take a good, hard, and cold look at our deeds and our thoughts and the motives that have moved us through our lives. Just being honest at who we are and what's been going on in our own heart and in our own lives. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and it is desperately wicked. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 7, verse 9, the heart is deceitful. That's not talking about their hearts, folks. It's talking about our hearts. It's talking about my heart. It's talking about your heart. Your heart will still deceive you, even though you're by, saved by the grace of God. Your own heart will trick you. You'll think you're better than you are. You'll think you've arrived. You'll think that could never happen to me. You'll think they deserve it, and you'll be the first one to cast a stone at somebody. But your own heart will deceive you because it's deceitful too. Your only hope was, and I will say your only hope is, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior who died, and you're forgiven because of his goodness. So that's where we stand. And it's absolutely folly, just folly for any one of us to be hard and unforgiving and uncompassionate toward lost sinners. It's not reasonable. As bad as we were, and where we were with all the sins we had, for us to then turn around and say, well, I have no compassion on that person. And for us to be hard-hearted in our heart, it's unreasonable. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit into this pattern of God. Come with me to Romans chapter 3. I'll ask you to locate this place in your Bible. And I'm going to read some of this rather lengthy passage. So Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 27 are the ones under consideration. Let me say that verses 10 through 20 is a net that catches all of us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh my. There's a net for all of us. You read that and you have to say, oh me, oh me, because you realize he's talking about us. He's talking about our nature. He's talking about our sinful being. He's talking about where we were, especially before we came to know Christ as our personal Savior. So here's a net that catches all of us. In fact, verse 19 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. All the world, that's us, all the world guilty. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the deeds of the law is the knowledge of sin. But verses 21 
through 26 present Jesus Christ in view of who he is and the gospel he did, the work of death, burial, and resurrection, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree as our only hope, but it's our sufficient hope. I'll start with verse 21. Now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. He's talking about how we got right with God, how we get saved. It's not by our own self-reformation. It's not because we turn over a new leaf. We decide one day I'm going to quit my alcohol. One day I'm going to quit my other sins. No, it's by the righteousness and the goodness of God. Because it's without the law. It's manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all, it's available to everybody, and upon all them that believe, it's only upon those who believe, God's imputed righteousness. And chapter 4 of this same book of Romans talks about how that when we deserve nothing but the scorn of God and eternal damnation, separation from God, he imputed, that is, gave us what we did not deserve. He simply, arbitrarily, by his own grace, gave us his righteousness. The moment we trusted him, he wrote in the book, paid in full for us, the imputed righteousness. You're not saved. You're not good because of who you are. You're just a sinner, but you've been saved because the righteousness of God is given to you. You're not right with God because you got right. You're right with God because he made you right by his own sacrifice. What he did on the cross is credited, given to you, imputed to you once and for all. The apostle Paul's talking about that. It is unto all and upon all them that believe. I'm not a Calvinist by a long stretch, and I do not believe that somehow back there before the foundation of the world, God decided you're going to make it and you're not. He gives us choice. If you go to hell, you won't go to hell because you're not one of the elect. If you go to hell, you go to hell because you rejected the very grace of God and said no to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You go to hell because you thought you could do it yourself and you didn't need him. And all the people who choose to do it their way and refuse the way of God are going to spend eternity separated from God. But the goodness of God, his work on the cross, his payment for sinners is available to everybody. But it's upon all them that believe for all of sin that comes short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth to be a perpetuation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness or his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God declares his righteousness as our hope. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Hallelujah for the work of cross the cross and Jesus Christ who did what he did so that he would be in a position to save sinners like you and me sinners on that list to the church in Corinth extortioners hateful evil in your heart sex sins covetous sins all those that long smutty list and God the God of heaven loved sinners like them and that's us Enough to come down here in person and take our sins in his own body and pay our price with his own blood so that we could have his righteousness 
and be moved into the, into the family of God. Wow. God's good. Where's boasting? This scripture asks that. Where's boasting? Nobody here has a right to boast. Nobody can say, well, I'm better than them. You have a right, you have no right to boast. You have every obligation to say, thank God for his grace and his mercy to us. He did it for me. I couldn't do it myself, but Jesus Christ paid my, print, uh, my price. And such were some of you. I've said there, were no, there are no legitimate grounds, no legitimate grounds for being self-righteous. I've said number two, that it is only by the grace of God that uh, we are who we are in spite of our sins, only by the grace of God. And I'm saying here number three, of all people who should appreciate and praise the grace and goodness of God, it's we who've been redeemed and who ought to be forgiving and tolerant toward other people who need the Lord just like we did. We ought to be, it ought to be those who know his grace. And then finally, such were some of you as a standing invitation to sinners. You say, well, I'm in that list, Brother Hudson. I know I don't deserve to go to heaven. I need to be saved. I don't think he can do it for me. This statement here says he can do it for you. If he could save the Corinthians and as lewd and as way out there as they were, I guarantee he can save you. There's nobody here with a past too bad. There's nobody here who's been too far out. There's nobody here who's just damned forever and you're never going to make it. Everybody here who's alive and listening and that's who's here has every opportunity. You can come to Christ today. It doesn't matter where you are. He can save you. We sing an invitation from time to time, just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, just as I am, I come. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how awful it is. You can come to the Savior, and this is testimony right here in the Bible, that he will save you. There's not a person out there whom God wouldn't save. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever Whosoever, not just whosoever, those are the elect, but whosoever means the whole world. He is the propitiation for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. He died in our place, everybody's place. And he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen. That's 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. You look back at that list. I read it a while ago to you over here in the book of 1 Corinthians again in the 6th chapter. And like I said, it's a terrible list. I mean, it's, it's awful. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. A long list. An inclusive list. It's the worst of the worst list. Here's a list that's compiled by the very a man of God under the inspiration of God. And it's a list indicative of sinners. But such were some of you. Some who in that church in Corinth had been over here and now they're saved. 
They may have thought, probably many of them did, I'm a sailor, I couldn't wait to get to the whorehouse when I got ashore, and I've been guilty, I have syphilis, and got a rear. I mean, look at me. What could God do for me? He could save you, such were some of you. Don't write yourself off. Here's the Bible saying, there's an invitation to sinners. God didn't come into the world to save righteous people. He came to save the lost. Amen. Came to save you. Came to save me. Came to save the whole world. To you who are out there in the pit, God says, come. Listen to this. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He's talking to you. He wants to clean you up. He wants to make a new person out of you. He wants to give you his righteousness. He wants to take your filthy rags away and give you his righteousness and make you whole, clean you up and change your life and make you a new creature in him. The last chapter of the Bible, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let him that heareth say, come. Let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Revelation Chapter 22, verse 17. Such were some of you, a caution against self-righteousness, a testimonial to the grace of God, a reminder of the need for forgiveness and compassion, and a standing invitation to sinners. I plead with you who are in this room today, come to the Savior. If you're not already saved by the grace of God, you could be today. And if you wait and wait, until you physically die, you'll wish to God throughout eternity while you're in the lake of fire that you'd listen today, that you didn't wait till next Sunday, that you came now. You wish, wish you would have come now to the Savior. Because as you can see, he wants you to come. I'm going to read it to you right out of this, his book. This is in the Old Testament. This is Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, saith the Lord. You've got to wonder why the Lord would even put something like that in the Bible. As bad as we are in that long list I just read, you'd think he wouldn't even mess with us. There were lepers. We heard about them in Sunday school. People who had a dread disease was very contagious. And he would get hold of them, and it was incurable. So those lepers would be pushed out of society into leper colonies, little villages and little groups where they were all just waiting to die. And it was painful and slow. The limbs would swell. The fingers it hurt, pain. And the flesh would just rot until sometimes a finger would just fall off. And a wrist, a hand and a leg. No doctors, no medicines. There were some people who would go out into leper colonies every now and then and drop off a little food for these dying people out there. But everybody in the leper colony, they were so contagious. They were so rotten in the body. They were so in such terrible shape that nobody wanted to get close. Nobody wanted to even touch them. You'd think the God of heaven who sees the world as a sinful place that it is, and sinners, he knows us, he knows our motives, he knows what we think and how we are so full of ourselves. He knows how our sins that we've committed and 
what we've done in haste and what we've done in premeditation. He knows all about that stuff. You'd say and think that God would just want to walk around us. You did it to yourself. I put you in the Garden of Eden and you and Adam fell and you fall and you've all done it. It's what he did. And just mind your own business. Get on out there. Go and die. It's been eternity. I won't do anything. That's not what God thinks. Come, let us, let us reason together, saith the Lord. We're quoting God here. Though your sins be as scarlet, nobody in here has any white sins. We talk about little white lies, but they're really red, ugly. Lying's just bad, bad. There are no, well, it doesn't involve anybody else, and uh, so therefore uh, I'm, I'm going to commit a victimless crime. All crimes have victims. Sex sins messes your life up. Messes the life of a partner up. It messes everybody up. Though our sin, your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. What's God say I can do? I can change you. Just, just as I am, I come. Come to God. And he's able to take a sinner and save him by his grace. He's able to take somebody who was a nothing and make something out of him. It's his goodness. He imputes his righteousness, remember, to us. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isn't that beautiful? That God would still care and still offer hope to sinners like us. And such were some of you. I wonder where you are today. We're about to sing the invitation. I'm going to ask you to come. If you don't know the Savior, come to where the medicine is. He's the only one who can take your life and change it. You can do all the self-reforming. You'll be like that dog that goes back to his vomit. You'll keep going back. But when you let God have charge of you, he will change you and make a new creature out of you. He promises that. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Let's stand. Father, we're about to sing an invitation. And this is your message. It's a message of encouragement. It's a message of hope. It's a reminder to us to not get so high in price and mighty. God of heaven, may it have found fertile soil today. And those who, who are already in your family would have compassion upon those who are not. That we wouldn't give up on our children and our neighbors and the lesbians and the gays and the transgenders. That we wouldn't give up on the drunkards or the drug people or any That we would have love and compassion and do what we can. We're not the people who can save them, but we can bring them to you and you can save them. And so help us to love our children and love our neighbors and do what we can to bring people to you because you're the great physician. Lord, help us not somehow, somehow get in our minds that they're not worth it. Because they are worth it. Every one of us is one of those who was there. And yet we are saved now. And Father, for those who are listening here and maybe in this room, maybe listen some other way, who think they're too bad, may they put that thought away. May this text remind them that you're in the saving business and nobody's too bad and they can come anytime. It's their choice. I invite people to come. Father, help us as we sing this invitation that your will will be done in each life. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.